Hello, welcome to the Blue Grid podcast. This is your host, Major Ani Fedotova, a psychologist at Los Angeles Air Force Base. What makes us resilient? What is grit? Please join me as I set out to discover how we can become grittier. This podcast features current and former military leaders, mental health experts, elite athletes, veterans, special operators, superior performers, POWs, and others affiliated with the military who have overcome significant adversity. Each guest will discuss the unique methods and practices to help airmen and really all service members or anyone interested to build mental toughness and grit. The views expressed are those of the author or guests and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the United States Air Force, the Department of Defense, or the United States government. Today, my guest is Chief Master Sergeant Lisa Arnold, who is the Command Chief Master Sergeant Space and Missile Systems Center in Los Angeles, California. Welcome to the Blue Grid Podcast. Thank you, ma'am. I'm so honored to be here with you today. Definitely. So you are the SMC Command Chief, and a lot of people know you professionally, yet you're so much more and not a lot of people know about your personal life. Recently, you have shared a lot of your personal struggles and your life story on Facebook, Us Mentoring Us. And you talked about some very personal things. I did. What was that like? You know, being vulnerable is never really easy. I don't know for many people how easy it is to be vulnerable, but I think it's really important. I think that now, I used to not think that. I used to be afraid to share any of the tragedies or situations or challenges I have in my life because they were very personal. Hmm. It almost was embarrassing at times, but I think over time and as I've gotten older and taken on more senior leader positions, I think it's really important to share your stories. I think it's important to share your challenges because I think many people around you are going through some of the very same things or have experienced some of the same things. And if they can see another person successfully work through that adversity, then that's a bonus for them in their eyes to realize that they can get through it too. So as tough as it is, it's really important to be vulnerable and share those things. Well, tell us about yourself. I'd like to know more about you as Lisa Arnold. I'm sure a lot of people as well. We see you as kind of, you know, cheerful, always in good mood, optimistic. Chief Arnold sending emails and Fridays. But who is Lisa Arnold? I'm really just a little old girl from the cornfields of Indiana. <laughs> I grew up there, was born and raised there with two amazing parents. I had a wonderful childhood growing up. Many people don't know this, but I have a very diverse family. And so not everyone in my family looks like me. I have biracial cousins and aunts and uncles. And so it was a beautiful, beautiful family growing up and getting to spend lots of holidays together. So then going through high school, great high school, you know, I didn't do anything crazy. I didn't run away from home or, you know, any of those. Like uh, Chief Toberman. Yeah, like Chief Toberman. <laughs> He's probably got to laugh at this. And then this most remarkable thing happened. I was working, it was early 1993, and I had graduated in 1989, and I was working for a dentist as a little dental tech, helping the dental assistant, you know, with tools and cleaning instruments and all those cool things. And my childhood friend, who goes by the name now as Chrissy Pimentel, it was Johnson, she's been married since then, but she 
had a wild idea and came to my office one day and said to the dentist's office and said, we're going in the Air Force. And I said, we're not doing anything. Uh, <laughs> I am not going in the military. There is absolutely no way at all I'm going in the military. And she said, well, I'm going. If you could support me, that would be great. And again, we've been friends since the seventh grade. And why was the reaction that we're not going? I just never thought the military, I never even thought of the military. It wasn't even a thing that crossed my mind. I had some uncles that served in the Army and the Marines, but it just never crossed my mind. My parents didn't serve. It wasn't something we talked about. And so I said, okay, yeah, I'll support you and went to the recruiter's office to talk so she could talk with them. And I was her little buddy, you know, and four or five times I went, I said, nope, not going. And maybe around the sixth time, I was like, okay, it sounds pretty interesting. We would go on the buddy system and all those good things. And we did everything we're supposed to do. And then the day came, we're supposed to leave. And she said, I'm not going. Mm. And I found a job and I'm going to stay back here. And I said, well, I'm going. And so off I went. Really funny story about that is when I got to basic training in tech school, I would write her letters and she wouldn't write back. And I got really mad. And I said, I'm never speaking to you again. You're the reason why I'm in this mess in basic training. <laughs> did you speak to her again? I did eventually, of course. <laughs> I just talked to her yesterday. Now today, I thank her every single day for kind of forcing me into that decision because she stayed home, got married, had my godsons. Her and her husband and family now live in Hawaii, and they're doing awesome. But I do thank her every day for changing my life because it's exactly what it did. It changed my life. And so 27 years, been serving in our great Air Force, and it's been amazing. And I'm looking forward to my last six months or so as I get ready to retire. What were some of your toughest moments in the Air Force, toughest assignments in the Air Force? Going through my career, I had a great start off in the career. And then about the time I was a senior airman, I made a terrible mistake and, and got to some serious trouble and eventually was investigated by security forces. And... I decided that in that investigation, I would just tell the truth. And so I told the truth. And so I ended up walking away out of that with an LOR and a UIF. And I sat down with the first sergeant and he said, you have a decision to make right here, right now. And you are at a fork in the road and you can turn left and roll yourself right out of the gate and figure out what you're going to do as a civilian again or you can make a right turn, making the right decisions into your future. And he said, you don't get time to think about it. You have to decide right here, right now. And so I decided that moment that I would make the right turn into the future. And I started down that path of always thinking about what's the right thing, what's the right thing, what's the right thing. And as I grew into the Air Force, you know, I was told lots of things. As a staff sergeant, I was told I'd never be a master sergeant because I was a female. And then off I go to be a master sergeant. When you're young and you make decisions that are not good for you, there was alcohol involved, those types of things. There's only two ways you can come out of that. Either you learn your lesson or you don't learn your lesson. And I certainly learned my lesson in that it's not right and should never happen again. And it never did happen again. So that's really important to understand that you're going to make mistakes. You know, I made a mistake. But my life was not destined by that mistake. My life was destined by the decision I made to never make that mistake again. Mm. And so there I was, you know, I told you I've been told some crazy things, you know, you won't be a master sergeant. One of the greatest opportunities that I had 
was to go be a PME instructor. And it's a crazy funny story because my chief, this is before we had DSD and all the developmental special duties, and you actually had to apply for it and mm-hmm. put a nice little package together and snail mail it off. You know, we didn't email anything back then. And my chief was like, oh, you need to go be a PME instructor. You just graduated the academy. And I was like, nope, ain't doing it. Nope, not doing it. And they kept pushing me and pushing me. And they said, well, the job is in Hawaii. And I said, I am ready. How fast can I get there? (laughs) But they forced me to put together a package and I got selected. And, you know, one of the valuable things out of that, and I look back now and, and we say it all the time, never miss an opportunity, never miss an opportunity. If it weren't for that chief, that opportunity would have slipped me by because that opportunity made me who I am today. But unfortunately, while I was there, I dealt with a very, very challenging situation, a situation that led me to question, should I take my own life? And that came from a very aggressive E9 that I worked with and his repeated sexual harassment, his repeated hostile work environment and toxic environment. And I experienced this for about a year or so, and I said I wanted to go speak to the command chief about it. We worked for the wing. What rank were you? You said it was an E9. I think I was just selected for master sergeant, or I had just pinned on master sergeant. Brand new master sergeant. Great power differential. And so when I did the right thing, gave him the courtesy that I was going to go talk to someone, and his response to me was, and I'll never forget it. His response to me was, if you're going to claim sexual harassment, just know that someone's claimed that against me before and they had to write me a letter of apology. Mm. Now, I didn't know what that meant. I had never experienced this before. I didn't know. You've never experienced sexual harassment no. before? No. And I never experienced it from a senior leader. Or I never went to talk to anybody about anything. Mm. But I knew it wasn't right because I'm standing in a classroom teaching that it's not right. And yet when I go behind closed doors in our offices, that's what we're experiencing. When you say sexual harassment, what do you mean by that? There were dirty jokes being told to me. He bought me clothes. I was a long distance runner and he felt like those clothes were fitting for me. He didn't buy anybody else any clothes. We would stand in our hallway when we would have distinguished visitors come in. We had a delegation from Germany come in and look at our PME and the way we did professional military education, and we all had to stand in line. And when the E9 got to me, he said, this is our resident runner, and he did his hands in the shape of my body. And there was a translator that did the same thing. So quite embarrassing and quite hurtful. Using their hands. Yes, motioning with his hands the shape of my body in front of everyone. And, mm-hmm. you know, just trying to get into my medical records, which was the hostile work environment. There were all kinds of endless things to where I eventually went to EO and I had 32 pages of documentation. And there was an investigation. The accusations were substantiated and he was removed from that environment. I was told some other things that happened to him as far as his EPR, but I don't know that for sure. So I don't really rely on that information. But it was a really tough environment. And so during that time that all this was going on, I would just go home and lay in my bed and literally just cry. I didn't want to go anywhere. I didn't want to do anything. I had two awesome roommates. We lived in Waikiki, Hawaii. And the only thing I wanted to do was just go in my room and cry. Mm-hmm. And the morning that I decided to go to EO, 
I had said I wasn't going to work. And I laid there just crying and just really said, I don't want to be here anymore. I don't want to go face this. I don't want to deal with this anymore. And the thought of ending my life came across my mind. And it really did. I did think about that. And I laid there and I said, okay, well, I'm a big proponent of no matter if I'm right or I'm wrong, it doesn't matter when I lose my professionalism. So I had to get out of that bed. And I knew ending my life was not the answer because it wasn't just about me. It was my parents. It was my friends. It was my teammates. It was everybody that I surrounded myself with that really would not be able to understand. Although I thought I understood, they would not be able to understand. You understood the reason why you would not want to be alive, but right. people around you would never be able to understand. Correct. Yeah. And so that moment, that grit, that resiliency, that faith that I had is what really got me out of bed that day. And so, you know, looking back on that time, probably the worst time in my life, I, you know, lost tremendous amount of weight, could not believe the stress that I was under, completely distanced myself from so many people that loved me and cared about me, kept it all away from my parents. Well, my father had passed away by then, but my mother knew nothing about it. Why do you feel now at that time you withdrew from everybody? I thought people would not believe me. I, I felt like people would make fun of me. When you're in a PME environment and you're teaching this stuff, the people that you bring into that environment are the top-notch people. They are the best equipped, the very best that we have in the Air Force. We put in front of students to teach them not to do these things, not to condone a culture of sexual harassment or not be a victim of sexual harassment or the perpetrator of sexual harassment. We teach these things day in, day out. So for me to go and say something to somebody of senior leadership, I was afraid they wouldn't believe me because of what I do for a living. You know, like, how can you tell me this is going on in your schoolhouse when every time we come there, the senior leaders, that you guys all look perfect and everything's great and the students, they love it and no students are failing, you're producing. How could that possibly be true? Mm -hmm. And so I was afraid of that. And it was just me, a brand new master sergeant, going to the command chief and telling the command chief that one of his fellow peers who runs a PME schoolhouse was doing these things. And so I didn't feel like anyone would believe me. What about your parents or people who loved you, people who would know you better? Yeah, so my father had already passed away. He passed away when I was a staff sergeant. He died of cancer. My mom, you know, I really close to my mom, and I, I didn't want her to worry. Hmm. I think that was the biggest thing of not telling my mom was because she would just worry so far away. She was in Indiana. I was in Hawaii. She couldn't see me. We didn't have FaceTime then. We didn't have any kind of virtual platforms that we could use. And so I didn't want her to worry about it. And I knew she would believe me. It's my mom. But it's that part of all she's going to do is worry. And I don't want her to worry about me. Right. And so for the record, it wasn't just me that he was harassing. There were some other you know, my other coworkers, he was kind of doing the same things. But I became the spokesperson, really, for the team. At the time, did they have SAPER offices or? We did not. Oh. We did not have a sexual assault prevention response coordinators or anything like that. Okay. Uh, we just had EO and IG, of course, but really didn't fall in the IG realm. As I quickly have become knowledgeable on what falls in the IG realm and what falls in the EO realm. But it definitely fell into the EO realm. And it was very, very scary. 
very scary time in my life. And the command chief, he really supported me. He never told me what to do because I gave him all the documentation and he read through it. And he never told me what to do. You can't do that. But he gave me the options, gave me the resources. And after really realizing that this wasn't worth my life, I just decided that it wasn't right and we needed to fix it. And looking back now, I am so thankful that I made that decision. Obviously, I'm still here living today, but two, he was never able to do that to anybody else while wearing a uniform. Mm -hmm. He was stopped. He was stopped. Well, he was forced to retire. I do know that. They escorted him out of the building. He came and got his stuff, escorted him out of the building, and then he left the island. Where he went from there, I don't know. And I've never spoken to him again. But I don't know this for sure, but sometimes I wonder if he thinks I ended his career, if I'm the one who, you know, stopped him from bigger dreams of a command chief or whatever the case is. But I was told I wouldn't get promoted to senior. I got a markdown on my EPR and decision making after that. I didn't fight it. I just said, okay, well, we'll work through it. And, you know, back then, it was such a stench on markdowns. And to make senior with a markdown as a master sergeant EPR was very scary. And so I, that's what I was told. You're not going to make senior. It's going to take you a while. And so I just went with it. And obviously, <laughs> that didn't happen. Was the markdown on EPR, you think, because of this investigation and because you were involved in that? I absolutely do believe that. You know, in my heart of hearts, I do believe that. All of my EPRs before that were perfect, great evaluations. And then all of a sudden, right after that, it's not no one ever telling me that that was going to happen. I wasn't led to believe that my performance was not worthy of another rating. I mean, I can always speculate. I don't have that factual statement other than I was told I would not make senior right away. And so I left there and went to my next base and talked to my leadership. And I worked from a clean slate, as great as they were. They were awesome. And great things happened after that. So I often wonder sometimes if I want closure or if I want satisfaction from speaking to this individual. But I know for a fact that this individual has access to global. In my mind, I know for a fact that he looks up my name and he's probably followed me and can see the rank and the position. And that's enough satisfaction for me because when you told me I couldn't do something, that grit and that resiliency proved wrong. So, Do you have anything to say now having had this experience and knowing that there are women and men that are currently in position that you were in, what kinds of things that you wish they knew or they wish they did if they're struggling with the situation like you describe? I think the number one thing I would tell someone who's experiencing those things is that you are valued and that you are cared for. And when you're told or resources are provided to you to reach out for help, they work. They are there for a reason. And we need to have trust in our leadership that everything will be taken care of and that the right people will do the right things to ensure that you and your teammates and your coworkers are taken care of. And that was hard to believe because the first time I said I was going to the command chief, they really just gave him a slap on the hand and put him back in the work center. But then there was a changeover in leadership and the behavior then continued and I went back again. And that second leadership 
really proved to me that we mattered and that what I was going through was not right and someone should be held accountable for it. So you just have to have that courage. You have to know that what's going on is not right and you have to step up and say something. Mm. You know, if you're here and part of our organization, come to me and let me know and we will get you to the right place and we will take care of you. It's scary to go through this alone, but you're not alone. You think you're alone, but you're really not alone. So use the resources and speak out. We got first sergeants who are amazing here. Yeah. Senior Master Sergeant Jamie Britt and Master Sergeant Fabio Batista Sanchez, they are amazing. And they wholeheartedly care. And I would tell you, just use the resources and believe in yourself. And then you went on to another assignment, but more to follow. Yes. I left there and I went to Andrews. PME taught me everything about being a leader. It taught me everything about the right way to be a leader, and it taught me the wrong ways of being a leader. And, you know, sometimes we learn more from our bad leaders than we learn from the good leaders. What not to do. What not to do. And from that moment on, I realized that people are going through things. It hit me like a ton of bricks that people go through things in silence. And so from that point on, I just promised myself that no matter what someone brought to me, I would go to the ends of the earth to ensure that they were taken care of and that we get them to the right people because I know what that felt like. And as tough as it was to overcome it, I think it really kind of strengthened me. It really made me stronger. It really made me a better person. I really wanted to get out of the service, you know, my data separation before I went to be a PME instructor. And I'm telling you, it changed everything about me. That experience through that three years really made me want to stay and make a difference for people. And little did I know that just a few short years later, I'd be on the path to a command chief and just really have great opportunities along the way to make those changes. My life is filled with challenges and adversities like everyone else, but seemingly every single one of those challenges and every single one of those roadblocks the challenges became opportunities and the roadblocks really became speed bumps through the grit and the resiliency that I think my parents really instilled in me in the beginning, but what I've learned so much in the Air Force. And I would like to share with you another very difficult time in my life. I'd already lost my father in 2002 and at the end of 2010, my mom suddenly came down with what we thought was the flu. And I remember on January 3rd of 2011, she was admitted to the ICU and extremely jaundiced, and we couldn't figure out what it was. I'd spent Christmas with her, and then I'd gone back to Washington, D.C., and on January 4th, I was right back home. She was in ICU, and February 5th, she died. I'm so sorry. My parents were young. My dad was 51 when he died. My mom was 58 when she died, and come to find out that she had liver disease, which we knew nothing about. She didn't drink. She didn't smoke, Mm. and so her being so young and dying so suddenly and my own remaining parent and really the closest person to me, it took a toll on me. And I found myself kind of back in that depressed state that I found myself three years before in Hawaii. Not to the point where I wanted to end my life, but I just felt useless in the world. I didn't feel strong in the world. I felt like everything I had was taken from me. Mm. And so what did I do? I turned to alcohol. I turned to drinking and hanging out, partying. That was the only thing that I wanted to do in my off time, right? And so 
In 2010, I met my very dear friend, one of my very best friends. Her name is, it's now Chief Master Sergeant Sarah Sparks. She is the command chief of the U.S. Air Force Academy now for the three-star there. And I met her in 2010. In, in 2011, after my mom died, about four or five months after that, we were TDY together. And well, she was TDY out to D.C. And I was drinking heavily. We got into a huge fight. Hmm. I just wasn't myself. I just blamed her for everything. And it was horrific. And to the point where I hurt her really, really bad, hurt her feelings really bad. Drove home in my vehicle drunk, made it home. I don't know how, made it home. And the next morning I woke up feeling tragically, tragically guilty and tried to call Sarah and no answer. And she finally sent me a message and said, I'm not talking to you. Hmm. And I broke down. I just, I, I felt like every ounce of pressure that was on me just exploded. And I just, I broke down. And I don't know if it was out of embarrassment or if it was the loss of my mom or it was that I hurt somebody else, somebody that cared about tremendously. But I had to do something. And Sarah said to me, I will not tolerate friendship like this. And you need help. And you need to go see someone. Because this is not how you can treat people. And we don't like to see you like this, but we're not going to be treated like this. And she didn't speak to me for four or five months. And it really, really hurt. But I knew I had to work on me. And I knew I had to see a therapist. I knew I had to see someone. And through that time, I grew stronger. We talked about my mom and we talked about my nearly non-existent relationship with my brother. And we talked about all those things. And by the way, this was all through Military One Source. Great program. And so nobody in my work center, nobody knew that this had happened. I shared it with a couple other friends and, you know, they agreed that I needed to have some help. And through that, I grew stronger. And I grew to realize that I'm not special. People go through this all the time. Yeah. And so eventually, without medication, I was able to work through my problems and my issues. And, you know, obviously, I still deal with my mom's death. I still deal with my dad's death. But I think with the help of my friends and the tough love of Sarah, it really helped me realize that I'm better than that. What was it like for you to stop using alcohol? I found that I was really kind of relying on that because. It made me kind of forget about what was going on, and I kind of felt better, I guess. And it wasn't like I would go home every night and get drunk. I felt better when I was out partying and drinking, and I could just throw all that stuff behind me and say, I don't have to worry about this right now. Let's have fun. But it really became part of my life. Going to bars and all this stuff became part of my life. You know, instead of staying home and reading a book and educating myself, I felt like I should be going out. And so to consider myself an alcoholic, I wouldn't say that. But what I would say is I abused it and it numbed me. And I think realizing that that wasn't the answer, I had always been an athlete and I had left that behind me. And so what I did was the therapist taught me that 
there's other ways to heal your pain. There's other ways to work on things, and it doesn't involve a substance, right? It can involve reading, or it can involve exercising, you know, not overdoing it, of course, but and so I went back to running again. And I looked at me like I overdo it. <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> You're a great role model for being an athlete. But some people, you know, they turn to that and it gets obsessive, right? Yeah. But I went back to running again and I just found myself feeling so much better. When you're told that you're not going to do this, you're not going to do that, you can't do this, you can't do that. And then you experience this thing that I experienced in Hawaii and then losing the one person that was closest to it just felt like it was just pouring raining on me. And so now, you know, I'm not saying I don't enjoy an adult beverage now and then, but I don't look at it as a pain medication. I don't look at it as medicinal. I don't look at it as this will save you. I now realize that the most important thing and the most important people are those people that I surround myself that are always encouraging me and always helping me realize that I'm awesome and that even when I have a setback that they're there and we can talk through it, and it's an amazing feeling. You appear to be such an optimist. Is that true? I'm going to tell you this. I have two totally different parents. I have my mom, who was an introvert, who didn't have a lot of friends, and her best friend, obviously, was my dad. And, you know, I didn't mention this, but when my dad died, my poor mother, her father died the day before her husband did. So she lost her dad and her husband within two days of each other. And then the day we buried my father was their 33rd wedding anniversary. So I kind of exerted a lot of that energy back and taking care of her. And then I have my dad who's this type A personality and he's a joke teller and, you know, he give his shirt off his back to anybody. Just believed that life was good and just enjoyed it and worked hard. I got all of his energy and I got his personality. My brother got my mom's personality, but I definitely got his personality. So I think through this adversity and with all the grit that you talk about and everything that we need to overcome these challenges, through it all, it's helped me remain optimistic. And when you go through those things and your life turns around, you start to realize how thankful you are and you want to share that with people. I've always been this way. I've told jokes my whole life. I've been kind of the center of attention, you know, when it comes to that personality. Mm -hmm. That's been me my whole life. But I think going through the trials and tribulations kind of brought that to a peak and where that's all I want to be now. And overcoming some of these things, for me, I have no other choice. I want to be optimistic and because the only other choice is to not be here on the earth. And that's not a choice for me. And it shouldn't be a choice for anyone. You're never married. Never married. No kids. Any regrets on that? No, no regrets. I think about it all the time. Well, I don't think about it in a depressive way. I think about it as, you know, this is what my life was meant to be. And I'm okay with that. And someday if, you know, I'm old now, I'm 50. So, you know, I don't know that I'll be having any children anytime soon. But, you know, if someone special came along, then who knows? But I don't look at it as I wish I would have. I look at it as I'm thankful for the life that I've been given. And I'm thankful for the opportunities I've been given. My parents were married, like I said, for 33 years, a wonderful marriage. And so I look at that as something that I aspired to want to have. But my faith tells me, and I'm strong in my faith, that if this is how it's supposed to be, then I'm okay with it. And besides, I get to spend my own money and, you know, do what I want to do when I want to do it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. What would be one thing 
you wish you could change about yourself? I don't know that I would change anything about myself. I like who I am as a person. You know, every morning I get up and I look in the mirror and I ask myself, what do you want to be remembered for today? I live by that. I share that with Airmen. I work every single day with Sergeant Morgan, who happens to be here with us today, actually, but I get to work with her every single day. And she hears me say this all the time, like, what do you want to be remembered for? And so when I look in the mirror and I ask myself, what do I want to be remembered for? I'm pretty proud of what I'm going to be remembered for. I'm pretty excited about what I'll continue to do. But I don't know that I would change anything about myself. I think I would go back and been a little more healthier. I think I would have made more healthier decisions for my life. I wish I would have eaten better or, you know, not smoked cigarettes when I was a teenager or, you know, done those you things. Smoked but cigarettes when yeah, when I was, I did. Yes. Horrible, horrible. <laughs> you know, I wish I would have not done those things, but personality wise and just as a good human, I don't think there's anything I would change about myself. I'm pretty conscious about what aura I'm putting out and I love it. I think it's great. What are some of your biggest fears? One of my biggest fears is not being able to help someone when they're in need. Whether it's a military member or a friend or whatever it is, I just feel like I want to be there for them always. And I put a lot of pressure on myself. I want to be their first call, right, if they need something. So one of my biggest fears is just not providing help when someone needs it. I want to be remembered as a good person. And the fear of not being remembered as that really kind of makes me a little nervous, but... What is a good person? I think one with character and integrity and honesty, one that's caring and compassionate, one that really keeps their word. When I say I want to help someone, I truly, genuinely mean it. And I want to be remembered for someone who made a difference, you know, a positive difference. When I'm retired and Sergeant Morgan goes off to be an officer in our Air Force, that's her dream. Uh, when she goes off to be an officer in our Air Force, I want her to look back and say, I had a great boss or I had a great friend in Chief Arnold. I loved coming to work. I loved the atmosphere and the culture that she provided. Those are things that people remember. As a command chief, this is my third command chief job, and I can go to the airbase group team and say, hey, I really think we need to put new treadmills in the gym and we'll pay for them. Or maybe I'll go to the lounge and put in a new sandwich. You know, uh, maybe I can influence that. But at the end of the day, in 10 years, those treadmills are going to be broken. That sandwich is going to be out of style. And no one's going to remember. Do you remember that treadmill that Chief Arnold put in the gym 10 years ago? I'm not going to remember that. And so I don't want people to remember me for that kind of stuff, materialistic stuff, right? Or you help stand up SSC or whatever it is. I don't want to be remembered for that. I want to be remembered for the time that I gave and the compassion and the care that I gave. And so that to me is what being a good human is about. As you may know, the intent of the Blue Grid podcast is talk about grit, talk about resiliency. And I talk a lot about distilling ingredients for grit. And Today, many of our service members and their families are going through tough times because they may have been affected by COVID-19 directly or peripherally. What do you recommend for those who are struggling with those difficult times? 
Yeah, that's a great conversation to have. I think one, recognizing that it is difficult. Everybody is going through a difficult challenge of one way, shape, or form. No one is immune to any of this. I have even struggled in isolation. I live by myself. I've struggled in not being able to go and do things. And as I told you, I'm a very type A personality on the go all the time. And so I think what I would share with folks is one, realize that it's okay to not be okay during this. We can't continues to live up to this perfection that we got to have it all together at any time, really, but especially during COVID, because we've got parents who are homeschooling and, and dual military couples trying to work through this. We've got military that's married to civilians who have lost their jobs. We have to understand that it's okay not to be okay. One, recognizing that it is a real situation. And then in two, you know, I would encourage you And this is the way I kind of get through it is I continuously, it's that positivity, the optimism that I live with in my life that there is going to be an end to this. We cannot continue to live like this and we will get through this. Telling myself that over and over and over again is really important for my resiliency during all of this. I get an opportunity three days a week to get briefings on the LA County COVID cases and deaths and then the nationwide And it's discouraging. It's very depressing. But I leave that room knowing that there's going to be an end to it. But we can't heal the pain of people who have lost someone directly to this. And I think when we face that challenge, when we have someone in our midst that we're surrounded by that has lost a loved one, realizing that they're in a time of need and realizing that your compassion and your care, a phone call, a text message, you know, a nice little elbow bump or whatever we're doing at the time. Those are the types of things that we can help others with. For us individually, we just have to realize that that grit that we have that's got us to where we are is going to continue getting us through this. Yeah, we have to take measures and we have to wash our hands every, you know, 15 minutes or whatever the case calls for. We have to wear a mask. We have to do all these things that are keeping us and our teammates safe. But there's a reason for it. I would tell you that you have to just find a way to be strong. Rely on your faith, rely on your spirituality or whatever that resilience is for you. Go out for walks, take your children to the park, do whatever those things that you can do. But number one, believe that this will come to an end. We're already seeing the light at the end of the tunnel with vaccinations and a better day is coming. And we just have to keep telling ourselves that. When I talk about great ingredients, everybody has their own secret ingredients. Do you have a secret ingredient for grit or the recipe for grit? Don't have the published (laughs) recipe book on grit, but I do have some things that I think are important. And it took me a long time to realize how important sleep is. I'm reading a book now, Why We Sleep, and it really gives me some facts on why sleep is really important and how it affects so much. You know, not having enough sleep affects diseases and Alzheimer's and high blood pressure and cardiovascular issues and mental health and all of these things. And I think sleep probably is the fundamental foundation of everything that we do. Someone was just talking about the aura ring the other day that I'm considering looking at, which is a little ring you wear, and it will give you a smiley face or a frowny face if you don't get enough, you know, eight hours of deep REM or what's it called, N-R-E-M or REM sleep. Thank you for the book. And so I'm considering getting that just to kind of keep me accountable. But sleep, really, I think if you want to grow grit, 
you got to start with the fundamental foundation of sleep. I was the person that didn't used to sleep a lot. I was that person. But probably in the last six or eight months, I've realized how important it is to my function. And I really believe that that eight hours of sleep that I get, my personality is the byproduct of that awesome sleep that I'm getting. Do you track your sleep? I have Apple Watch, but I don't wear it at night. So I just know what time I go to bed and I know what time I wake up. And then I count the hours in between. I'm like, I did good last night. And then I know if I'm dreaming, if I wake up and I was dreaming, I was getting some good REM sleep. So uh, I do focus on that. And that's all that book that I'm reading, right? And so that book was a suggestion by my boss, Lieutenant General Thompson. So thank you, boss. Why we sleep? Why we sleep. It's very good. And then everything goes from there, right? Uh, healthy eating. I recently, about eight weeks ago, I'm working on my eight week now of plant-based, gluten-free eating. And it's made such a world of difference in my body. And my energy level is so much higher. So combined with great sleep and eating plant-based, gluten-free, it has just really made a huge impact in eight weeks of my life. And all these things are fundamental foundations of things that we do. But Everything really continuously revolves, for me, revolves around that resilience. We talk about those four pillars of resilience in the Air Force for a reason, because everything kind of revolves around them. The things we don't talk about, though, in that resilience, and we have to dig deeper. And I know that the Space Force is going to be looking at a lot of this stuff as they continue to stand up their resiliency organization within the Space Force. But look deeper into that, right? Sleeping, teaching airmen and folks how to really cook healthy. What does that mean? We need to teach more of that. And so I think about our airmen in the dorms, right? We just tend to give them their substance allowance and say, there you go. But I think if we were offered things that would teach them what it means to eat healthy and cook healthy, I think that builds grit. But ultimately, that resiliency that you build over your life, what your parents give you, what your teachers give you, what your pastors give you, your grandparents, whoever raised you, whoever loves you, that then leads to ensuring that when you have those challenges, that grit is there. And each experience tightens that grit and makes that grit stronger. So you can continue to get over those challenges and understanding that once you get over the first hurdle, you know now that you can get over any hurdle. You just got to keep pressing through that grit. There's lots of things that go in. I, I wrote down a bunch of things. I think strong social network, that got me through the worst times of my life. Again. I got three best friends. It's the one that made me go in the Air Force. And yes, I'll say she made me go in the Air Force. Mm -hmm. I got my friend Sarah I talked about. And then I got my best friend Deanna, who's retired now. But all of them, I lean on them so much. And when I was in Afghanistan, I spent a year there from January 17 to January 18. You know, we'd fly around these helicopters and bombs are going off and flares are going off. And your anxiety really skyrockets. Your nerves go up. And I remember going home one day and this social network was so powerful to me. I called and I really called Sarah again because Sarah had just spent a year in Afghanistan. I'm like, how did you get through this? Because it's nerve wracking. Like I find myself just on edge all the time. And once again, she said, sounds like you have anxiety. You need to go see the doctor. And I went and sure enough, and I've been on medication for anxiety uh, twice a day since 2017. And it's been great. It's been wonderful. And so just realizing that there are times you're not going to be okay. And that grit that you build through your social network and your sleep and your physical activity and the positivity, you know, positive attitude is everything when it comes to grit. It's everything. Those things are what builds your recipe of grit. And everyone, and I don't care who you are, you've got grit. You've got it. 
and you're strong enough to overcome anything that gets in your way. Anything, right? Because those are just little speed bumps, little road bumps. You're going to just bust right over. Be that tank driver and just roll over that. You know, just roll it over because that's what you're going to do with grit. Awesome. Thank you so much for this, Chief Arnold. Is there anything else that I'm not asking you that you'd like to add? I guess the final thing I would tell anyone is that at the end of the day, you can never, ever give up, ever. You can't give up. Don't give up on yourself. Believe in yourself and know that in the good times and the bad times, there's always something there that you can grab onto and enjoy or help you get through those moments. Don't for one second think that everyone who's in every position in our Air Force doesn't have a story that you don't know nothing about. And we often want to look at our senior leaders. I did it when I was young. I'd still do it to this day sometimes. And I often think, man, they got it all together, right? Their life is a breeze and it's easy, but they're all going through challenges. And there's no straight arrow to success. It's a spaghetti noodle and is all over the place. But it's the grit and it's the resiliency that will guide you in never giving up because you got it. And know that you're cared for and that you're valued and that there's nothing anyone won't help you with in those challenges. We want to celebrate your good things and we want to help you through your challenges. And I think that's the beauty of what we do. I'm so thankful and honored to have served this 27 years. And as my career gets ready to end, I will eventually hang this uniform up one more time. And I will know that it's because of that grit. It's because of my parents. It's because of my friends and my coworkers that those challenges that I had are behind me. And the strength that I had to get through that will carry me through the rest of my life. Thank you so much, Chief Arnold. It's been an honor. This is your host, Major Anya Fedotova. Thank you for listening to the Blue Grid Podcast. Hopefully you enjoyed this interview. My goal is to air the narratives of courage, vulnerability, and grit to normalize the airmen's own challenges and help them internalize the message of hope and recovery. This discussion is not a formal medical advice and any techniques, treatment, diagnosis, or alternative actions discussed are not a recommended treatment or course of action for all listeners and are not a replacement for professional medical assistance. You are encouraged to seek medical psychological help for your unique issue. If you have feedback, please find me in the global. My email is anavfedotova.mil at mail.mil. It's A-N-N-A dot V dot F-E-D-O-T-O-V-A dot mil at mail 